if you will, turn with me to our scripture, our scripture text this morning. It's going to be in Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading from verses 13 to 22. And if you're unaware, I've been preaching through the gospel of Mark at Evergreen. And it's been just such a blessing to go through the gospel. And I wanted to have a moment, and I'll do this before we read, but to, re- to reflect on why, we're, there's, why we need preaching from the gospels. J.C. Ryle, in The Holiness of God, really gave an insightful th- quote that I could not use when I read it. He said, It would be well if professing Christians in modern days Study the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt all Scripture is profitable. And it is not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another. And I don't want to do that tonight either. But I think it should be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little bit more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now why do I say this? I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be antiquated with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It is better to be antiquated with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with doctrines such as faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are all matters pertaining to the king. But it is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face, and to behold his beauty. Now pertaining to the book that he's writing, he says that this one secret of eminent, this is the one secret of eminent holiness, that he would be conformed to Christ's image and become the Christ-like man that he must be constantly studying Christ himself. That's the thing that we get, in particular in the Gospels, that we don't get as clearly in the rest of Scripture. Something that does make these, thing, these four books of such imminent importance for us. When we read the Gospels, we get to see who Jesus is. To answer that question, Mark's gospel, the very first eight chapters, is all about answering those questions. That one particular question, really, all pertaining to who is Jesus. And that's so important because our apprehension, our grasp of those doctrines like justification, sanctification, Although they're great, they're wonderful, glorious gospel gospel doctrines that are reasons that we praise Jesus, it's Jesus himself who saves sinners. The God-man that's taught in these scriptures, in the word of the living God, that is the person who's able to save you, who we are to call out upon. We don't call out to some abstract doctrines. We call out to Jesus to save us from our sins. So I want you to be thinking about the question, who is Jesus, as, we, as I read from Mark's Gospels, chapter 2, starting at verse 13. He went out again besides the sea, 
And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, that is Jesus's, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard about it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will not fast. They will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and worse is the tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Thus is the reading of God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. I pray that you'd bless the preaching of your word now, and that your Holy Spirit would make it efficacious in our heart that we would be able to better see who is Jesus and that you would help us to live more in light, more Christ-like lives as a result of it out of thankfulness for all that Jesus has done to save us. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I've titled this sermon, Jesus Feast with Sinners. Jesus Feast with Sinners. Because that's the point of the conflict here. Both in verses 13 through 17, it's about food. And verses 18 through 22, it's about food. Just really how he's not eating. But really, it's not about food. You see, the the Pharisees, there we go. The Pharisees have been just starting their main offense, their main attack on Jesus's character, on Jesus's authority. Mark chapter 1 introduces Jesus as the Messiah, and particularly focusing on the fact that Jesus as the Messiah has authority over all things. And it makes sense that the very first challenge to his authority occurs at the very beginning of chapter 2 in the verse 12 verses where we read, Verse 10, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
and then he heals a paralytic. It makes sense that the very first challenge to Jesus' authority is not over the miraculous healings, which everyone likes to be healed, or uh, relieving people from demonic oppression, or even in his teachings that are spoken with such clear authority, even though even when his, with his teaching in verse 22, we do see hints that the scribes might not be the happiest with Jesus as he says in verse 22 that they were astounded as teaching the crowd, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So there you get a little hint that there might be something of a conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. But where we get in our text today is that this confrontation, this, this is a series of really five conflicts between chapter 2 and chapter 3, verse 6, that we see. And really what we're getting is we get the function in the Pharisees of a foil. Now, if you have not been a part of an English class in a long time, like I have, not been, <laughs> um, a literary foil is a character that's set to be a contrast to the main character. And the reason for the contrast is not to highlight themselves, but it's to highlight some specific character quality in the person you really want to talk about. And that's what we get in the Pharisees. We have them as a foil, really in order, Mark uses them in order to highlight a characteristic about Jesus. Because that's who he's trying to introduce his reader to. Constantly, the refrain in Mark's gospel is, who is Jesus? And we just learned, in the, well, you would have learned. If you had been an evergreen, you would have learned in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2 that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and that stands at the very centerpiece of the gospel that he proclaims. And in this Jesus feasting with sinners, we see that it starts off not about food, and then it's about food. And in those last two verses, verses 21 and 22, we see really the source of all this conflict. And that's why I'm bringing this sermon to you today, because with this text, we get to see the, really the heart between the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is the first time we've been introduced to the Pharisees. Let's uh, go ahead and start at verse 14. The source of this conflict that's really not about food is that, if you remember the title, if Jesus feasts with sinners, the problem that they have here in verses 13 and 14, it's not about food, it's about who he eats with. It's about who Jesus eats with. Verse 14, and he passed by, this after he resumed his teaching ministry by the sea, he saw Levi, and he calls him out. Levi, this is Matthew, the apostle, one of the twelve, the son of Alphaeus. And he's sitting at a tax booth when Jesus called him. And in verse 15, we see that he, now this is Jesus, reclined at the table in his, Matthew's, house. And many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. The scene that Mark's painting for us is that Jesus is teaching, he's giving forgiveness of sins to sinners, 
which is why he came to come to save sinners, and he saw a tax collector. He forgave him. He called him to repentance. And then Matthew's response, and Luke tells us in Luke chapter 5 that Matthew's response was to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. And his response is to set up a dinner party for him. And because Matthew was a tax collector, the people who come are tax collectors and sinners. That might not strike you as something odd, but when you hear tax collector, what do you think? It should strike you as the worst of the worst. This was, uh, I read recently that the Romans even did not like the tax collectors. See, it makes sense that the Jews would not like the tax collectors because they were basically traitors to their own nation. They served the oppressing, the oppressant, the oppressor, there we go. They served the oppressor, the one who is ca- causing them to be enslaved to the Roman Empire, using their position to extort others, to draw people to draw a tax not only for the Roman government, but try to draw as much as they can because any of the amount above what the tax is, they get to keep for themselves. So they're thieves, extortionists, and they're traitors. But even the Romans didn't like tax collectors. It was actually so rare that there's a, there's a man named Sabinus who had a clean reputation as an, in that office of a tax collector. And after his death, he was honored with an inscription on his tombstone that read, Kalos Tessalosanti, which means, here lies an honest tax collector. These were, if we're going to use our modern parlance, tax collectors are scumbags. They are the worst of the worst. They do not care about other people. They only care about their own greedy interests. That's why you can say that Jesus, when he was invited to this scumbag's house, the only people he could really get to the party were other scumbags. Sinners could be a catch-all term for this. They're the only people who would ever associate with a tax collector. Anyone who would ever associate with a tax collector besides Jesus and his disciples. And notice there that many are following him. Many are at this party. And the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 16, when they saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And we're starting to get a little glimpse here into the heart of the Pharisees. Because if you were to read verses 1 through 12 and see that they did have a right theology that only God has the power to forgive sins. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And they were offended in that moment by the fact that Jesus was equating himself to God. But there was something else which they were offended by. They were offended by the very notion that God forgives sinners. Especially the worst of the worst which is exactly the type of people Jesus is forgiving. A great place to look at this. If you will, um, well, actually, let's, 
Let's wait on turning to Luke chapter 18, but go ahead and have your finger in there. I want to jump ahead. Jesus gives a very clear explanation of why he associates with tax collectors and sinners. He says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He gives the illustration of a doctor. You see, Paul even quotes the line in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that bad company corrupts good morals. There is a sense in which hanging out and befriending, having best friends that are sinners, associating with drunkards, you might be kind of led into a drunken type lifestyle. That's true. But Jesus is not associating with means of just hanging out and having friends and never getting into conflict or ever calling out for sin, their sins. Instead, he describes himself as a doctor. And it's not those who are well in need of a physician, of a doctor, but the people who are sick. Specifically, he says, I came to call the right the I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke adds a very helpful qualifying phrase in Luke chapter 5, if you want to look at that, in verse 30-something. I think it's 37. I'll throw that out there. He says that he, called, that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was not just hanging out just for fun. He wasn't just associating, and these weren't his accomplices that he never called out for their sin. Instead, What Jesus was hanging out with them for was a very specific purpose. He was calling them to repentance and faith. He was offering them the forgiveness of sins. And there's no one too wretched to receive the forgiveness of sins from Jesus. And he explains it this way. He says that that those who are well are not those, the people who are healthy don't need to go see the doctor. It's the people who are sick. We start to see in this kind of the view the Pharisees had of holiness. See, if you know anything about the Pharisees, they were a member of a group called the Hasidim. They came out, uh, people who were really focused on the law. And in the intertestamental period, they saw and read the Old Testament that God's people had been exiled from the land because they had not kept the law. They were disobedient time and time again. So what the Pharisees did is they devised a system which they wanted to ensure that they would not break the law by setting up a bunch of hedges around it to make sure that you wouldn't possibly break it. And their form of holiness was making sure that they did not break it by keeping all the outer periphery laws. So they saw with their system of something close to, by the time you get to the Mishnah in the the 200s, that they had a fully developed system of 600 laws that if you kept these, you would not be sinners because they rightly define sin as 1 John chapter 1 defines it as sin is any one of conformity unto. Now, really, this is a Westminster but sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of God's law. That to, to break God's law is the de- very definition of sin. But their problem is they, while they were rightly disgusted by sin, 
they had so categorized sin that they did not see themselves as sinners. They didn't realize that Romans chapter, th- like Romans chapter 3 says that there is no one righteous. No, not one. There is none good, none who seek after God. That's the actual state of humanity. You see, the Pharisees, when they really looked, and I think the word scumbag really works really well for this situation, because when they looked at tax collectors, when they looked at the worst of the worst, they had a proper understanding of holiness. And there's a sense in which a proper understanding of holiness does draw that out of us. When we see abortions happen in the world, it should fire us up. It should get us passionate about tragedies happening, about violent offenses happening. That should be the case. The problem comes is when we're consumed only with the sin of others. When we lose a disgust, it's a good thing to gain a disgust for the wretched sins out in the world, but it becomes a really big problem once we start looking at ourselves and not becoming disgusted with our own sins. And there's kind of two sides that we have to make sure that we don't fall off on. On the one hand, we do not want to say like many uh, evangelical churches say that, you know what, all sins are equal. The reason why the tax collectors, why we can associate with them and offer them forgiveness is because their sins are no worse than mine. They are worse sins than we have committed. And, and murder are worse, and I hopefully are worse sins than we have committed. Otherwise, you'd probably be in jail. We don't need to minimize the sinfulness of sin in order to pursue sinners. We can recognize that, yes, there is degrees of sinfulness. There are some sins in the sight of God that are more heinous than others, some by reasons of complicating factors. But on the other hand, we need to make sure that we confess something the Pharisees forgot, which is all transgressions of God's law deserve His wrath and curse. I know you've been holding your finger in Luke chapter 18 for a while. Go ahead and turn there because we really see this play out with Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector starting in verse 9. And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. It's kind of a similar situation, wouldn't you say? The Pharisee was standing by himself. He prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, have mercy to me, a sinner. Listen to what Jesus says in conclusion of this. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be 
exalted. This is the way God's holiness works. God's holiness, pursuing God's holiness, pursuing obedience to God's law, does not mean that we are to follow the monk's practice and pull out from the world that we might not get dirty by the sins of others. Actually, when we read in Scripture, we see that God's holiness is actually the very thing that causes him to pursue sinners. With this internship, I've memorized Isaiah 55, and I can't help but constantly making applications to it. Isaiah 55, verses 7 and 8 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Why? Let him return to our God, that he might have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. See, if the Pharisees had defined God's whole, defined their pursuit of holiness as Leviticus 19 verse 1 defines it, which is, be holy for I am holy, they would have seen that the holiness God commands is not a holiness of separation from the world, but it's one that calls sinners to repentance. Think about even Israel's very history. They were saved out of slavery. They were brought to Mount Sinai of no works of themselves, and they constantly were rebelling against God, not trusting God. And how does God reward them? Not for any good in them, but he gives them his holy law to reflect his character after they've saved him. Unless we think that things have changed, 1 Peter chapter 1 quotes Leviticus 19.1, saying, Be holy, for the Lord our God is holy. True holiness causes us to pursue after sinners, to call them to repentance, and offer even the worst of the worst salvation. Because we have such a great Savior, He can do it. He will do it. And we should not be so disgusted by the sins of others. Never let your zeal for holiness keep you at a distance as if you're somehow going to get dirty by the sins of other people. That's not how holiness works. You don't get dirty from being just around sinners. You get dirty by imbibing in that lifestyle, abiding in, in, abiding in lawless behavior. It definitely was not about, the, not about the food, right? But then we get, and we kind of ha- see this in that same uh, parable in Luke chapter 18, Part of what the Pharisee was boasting in, notice, he says, I fast twice a week. In verses 18 through 20, we see the Pharisees really do make it about food. First, it's not about the food. It's not, you know, it's just about who he's eating with. Now, it's about the food. Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, why do John's disciples And the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. The Pharisees took a lot of pride in fasting. They took a lot of pride in being the self-so-called people who were pursuing God's law and pursuing holiness according to his law, even adding extra laws to keep so that they don't break it. But the funny thing is, is that Fasting is only commanded in one place of the entire 
Old Testament. It's in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. And they were to fast. The only commanded fast in all of Scripture was the fast before the day of Yom Kippur, where Israel was called to mourn over their sins, confessing their unrighteousness, confessing what they deserve. And then they had a sacrificial lamb killed on their behalf. But there are still, it's not like, even though that's the one commanded time of fasting, it's not that fasting is not all over Scripture. We do see fasting all over Scripture. uh, scripture. Even Jesus fasted for 40 days at the beginning of chapter 1. So what are they getting at here? What's the Pharisees' problem with them not fasting? That Jesus' disciples don't fast? It's because they're missing the point. They think that they're keeping God's law, but instead they're just keeping man-made traditions. You see, fasting, whenever you see it all over Scripture, was a voluntary act in order to focus prayer during times of distress and sorrow. Think of Esther. She's about to, in Esther chapter 4, she's about to move in and she's about to ask that the king would not slaughter all the Jewish people, and she says, Please pray for me with sackcloth and fasting. And that's what they did. We see, even with, in the New Testament, we see the disciples praying and fasting over Peter being in prison. And the funny thing is, there is, they're like, oh, go away, Peter. Or, go away, you know, we're praying for Peter to get out of prison as he's standing at the gate. But we see fasting as this voluntary act to focus our prayers during hard times, In light of that, listen to what Jesus says in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? There's a wedding going on, and you have the wedding party. The question is, is can the wedding party start crying and mourning and sobbing during the wedding? The answer is absolutely not. It's completely inappropriate. It's not the right occasion. Weddings are meant to be joyful occasions. Weddings are meant for celebration. And even if you are sad, really the appropriate thing to do is to hide that fact for the couple hours that you're going to be involved in the wedding and to rejoice with those who rejoice in the wedding. And Jesus says as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It would not be appropriate. Verse 20, the days will come though when the bride when, will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. The word there snatched from them. And then they will fast in that day. This is the very first time Jesus predicts his own crucifixion, using language similar to Isaiah talking about the what the suffering servant servant would go through in being snatched away. There would be a time for fasting, but fasting, if you actually know the biblical practice, if you actually read your Bible, is completely inappropriate for his disciples. And the Pharisees, lest I just overlook this, in verse 18, they're trying to lump in John's disciples into this. See, there was even a, time, there was even a reason before Jesus came 
for John's disciples to fast, and that would be because they were mourning and longing the long-awaited Savior. But you know what? Once he finally came, fasting was completely inappropriate. It would only become appropriate when Jesus would die on the cross. And even now, I think that we do have this sort of tension where Jesus is with us always, and yet he is not yet here. And there are times when we are drawn into sorrow, and we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I think in those times, fasting would be appropriate. But the critique of the Pharisees themselves is not the fact that they're keeping God's law so well, but it's found, uh, their critique of them is found in this refrain that Jesus constantly uses of the Pharisees. Ten times in the Gospels, we read where Jesus says, have you not read these experts of the law who'd often memorize the first five books of Moses were completely missing it. They're completely missing the purpose of even the most basic commands of God. Certainly we see in Scripture that Jesus puts a premium on reading, understanding, and obeying the Scriptures. And that's when we get to the real issue in verses 21 and 22. We get to the real issue. Jesus puts his finger on the real reason why there's this constant conflict. That they, First, they have a problem with him, not that he's eating, but who he's eating with. But now, in verses 18 through 19, or 18 through 20, it's, well, yeah, we actually do have a problem with you eating. You know, you're eating too much. You're not fasting twice a week like we do. But Jesus sets aside in the very center point of Jesus's five conflicts between chapter 2 verse 1 and chapter 3 verse 6, he identifies the real issue as this, the incompatibility between Jesus's message and theirs. The teaching of the Pharisees and what they believe about God and what he teaches about who God is. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshunk cloth on an old garment. If the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worse the tear is made. Uh, these two illustrations are going to be communicating the very same point. And I will confess to you that often my wife does my laundry, so I had to, go, you know, I had to look this up. So I know that's, yes, I know. It's a, but anyways, that what happens when you wash a new shirt, new clothes? It shrinks. The contrast here is not that the old cloth is old, and that's the problem with it. It's the fact of incompatibility. You're trying to combine two things that don't fit together, because while you, when you wash this old garment that you've patched up with a new piece of cloth, while you've made the repair, the repair is not going to last very long, because the two ingredients are completely incompatible. It's like trying to mix oil and wine. They do separate out. Except the problem here is that when they separate out, it creates a tear when the cloth shrinks. And another very common illustration that they would have been able to readily associate, but we probably don't, is the one about wineskins in verse 22. 
And no one puts new wine in old wine skins. If he does, the wine bursts the skins and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins, but the new wine is for the fresh wine skins. I was really confused about this. But really all this is, is this is their wine traveling case. They would kill a goat, use the leather of it, shave off the hair, put it inside out, and tie it up. And they would sew it together, the, the, the leather, the tanned hide, and they would put resin along the seams in order to create a travel flask, a carrying case. And sometimes they would even have a, a satchel kind of handle that you could put over your shoulder, depending on the size. But what happens over time It starts off, the leather starts really soft and malleable and able to expand, which is necessary if you put new wine into that bottle. Because what happens is, if you have new wine, there was no no Welch's grape juice. There was no non-alcoholic grape juice. So what happens over time with new wines is it ferments and gets stronger and stronger. And as the wine ferments, CO2 is released, the pressure builds, and if you have a soft wineskin, it's, it's able to flex with the increase of pr- pressure. But over time, as the leather hardens, it dries out, it becomes stiff and brittle. So if you were to pour, new, if you pour old wine that's not going to ferment and release a lot of CO2, you're going to be fine. It's not going to do anything. But if you put new wine into it, you run the risk, the possibility that the pressure is going to build, you're going to bump it against something, and the seams are going to burst, and you're going to lose everything. What's Jesus' point? I think because it's, it's safe to say in the midst of all these conflicts, Jesus is not comparing the old and new covenants. Jesus is not comparing the old and new co- covenants. What he's doing is he's comparing and contrasting, he's saying that the teaching of the Pharisees, which we've already just looked, completely missed what the purpose of fasting was. They haven't read their Bibles very closely. That he's saying that their teaching is separate from his. Now, there is a sense which we can now, after the New Testament has, or the New Covenant has been inaugurated, that if we go back and follow the Mosaic law, we do the same thing that the Pharisees do. Why is that? Because we would have missed the very thing that the Old Testament is for. All of the ceremonial law is meant to point to Jesus, what he would do. Remember when we talked about Yom, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? That was pointing forward to what Jesus would do as the sacrificial Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Dying for the sins of his people. And now for us as Christians to go back and do those practices would be just to practice empty ritual without any sort of understanding of what God's word teaches about those rituals. But particularly in this text, Jesus is trying to make a point. The point is that the Pharisee's message is completely incompatible with his. And this is the very root of the conflict. And now we get back to our same question that we started with. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Where do we, what do we learn about him in this text? What do we see? 
we see what true holiness looks like. We see that Jesus is holy. And it's the very thing that causes him to seek and save the lost. We see that his holiness is not just some empty ritual, some practice that he has to show that he's more pious than others. Jesus' practices His holiness was defined by obedience to God's law with a true understanding of what that means. And Jesus' holiness, who Jesus is as the holy Son of God, puts him at complete odds with the Pharisees who have no idea why they're practicing what they're practicing, who follow it for mere show, who think that they can so follow the law that they remain sinless, not in need of salvation. Jesus' holiness is unique and incompatible, really, with all false religion. If you were to say like one point about what we learn about Jesus' holiness, we learn that Jesus, in following after him, is completely, completely incompatible with all false religion, all forms of legalism, Jesus is holy, and he is good, and he is unique. He's the only son of God. He's the only hope that we have in life and in death. May we not look to ourselves and our own resources. May we not get disgusted merely with the sins of others, but may we confess our sins daily, knowing and acknowledging that we too are in need of Jesus's forgiveness. He is our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not just in your word teach us these disparate theological truths that we somehow have to be smart enough to apprehend and get a grasp of in order to be saved from our sins. But instead, what you have, especially in the Gospels, that is so, such a blessing to us, is we get to see the person who we trust in, the person in whom all our hopes reside on and all our hopes are pinned on, is Jesus Christ and him being able to save wretched sinners like us. And although, Lord, we in this room do not have murders, to confess to, Lord, we do have wretched sins. We confess that all our sins have made us lawbreakers, worthy of God's wrath and curse, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. Lord, we confess our sins knowing that our only hope in life and death is belonging to and following after Jesus Christ as Lord. Lord, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. I pray that, Lord, in light of that, in light of being followers of you, that you would help us to constantly put our hope in you, to not presume upon your grace or your forgiveness, and never withhold the grace of God from others, that we would seek when we find ourselves disgusted with the sins of other people and see that their sin disturbs us, that that would be the moment 
that we see that they need Jesus. They need their sins forgiven just as we have been forgiven and that we would call them to repentance and faith and we would do that with winsomeness, with kindness and love, wanting to see sinners turn to Jesus. For Jesus came to save sinners. Lord, it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.